0: Yes, oh, a Secret
1: Weapon. Yeah! Hi, I'm Donna Lauren.
2: And I'm Dr. Adam Girachi.
1: And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast.
2: Welcome back to our podcast. We're trying something a little different for the end of the year. Today, Donna is going to read from our manuscript, as usual, but we will be discussing it live. We'll have a kind of round-robin thing going. We're really hoping that you, the listener, have been enjoying Love's a Secret Weapon over the past five months. And more than that, we hope you've perhaps learned something about yourself in the topics we discuss. In 2021, we really want to open the conversation with you. More on that later, though. Before we start, I do want to remind you to subscribe on your favourite platform to our podcast. Subscribing lets us know how many people are engaging with the podcast, but also makes it easy for you to know when we've uploaded a new episode. We're on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Spotify, and I'm sure I'm probably missing a couple of other platforms and please do leave us a review so that we can spread the word and widen the Love's a Secret Weapon community. Well, Donna, we're at the end of the year.
1: Yes, Adam, and what a year 2020 has been, not just <laughs> for, yeah, for us, not for um, the country I live in, mm. for the country you live in, and all over the globe.
2: I don't know what you're talking about. To me, it's been a pretty calm year. No, no. Um, <laughs>
1: well, you know, when when we conceived of of doing the the podcast, um, it was a way to find a grounding. And um, and a and a creative uh, opportunity to express ourselves mm. and interrelate mm. uh, with anyone who listens to this podcast universe. So it's that juxtapositioning of how do you manage in a chaotic world, mm. you know, when you really want it to be a creative world, you know. <laughs> So. so
2: true. I think we've all needed something creative to uh, set our minds to, you know, during this time. So I'm so glad we've been able to to do this over the last five months, and and you know, really look forward to going forward what we're gonna what we're gonna do, um, which I think leads nicely into what we're gonna t- discuss today. And and what are we what are we reading from today, Donna?
1: We're reading from chapter eight. And that is uh, called Shaken All Over. (laughs) And it's a continuation from the Shindig days into um, more of the Vietnam era Mm. and leading up to a tribute to our, our, I say our, meaning my husband and my very, very dear friend who wrote a song that was an anthem for the Vietnam War called Eve of Destruction.
2: Absolutely. And we have an interview at the end of this podcast, which we'll discuss while we're chatting, but we're doing something a bit different today. Instead of having the usual reading and then discussion, we're going to have some of your reading, and then we're going to break it down a little bit, and then we're going we're to have some more and sort of lead our way through. And as always, have a little bit of music as well. So I'm ready when you are, Donna, to take us away to uh, Chapter 7, Shaking All Over. Fantastic. And...
1: Uh going to begin with a cup of tea and i raise my <laughs> cup to all of you and all of us that's my noisy little spoon inside <laughs> my cup just to stir the lemon and honey two days after i returned from appearing with bob hope at the little 500 race in indiana university the cast of shindig went on the road jerry and the pacemakers very cross the mercy was busting the charts so they were booked as the stars bobby sherman and i were also signed for this trip to new york a very popular song for me was goldfinger <laughs> performance, I wore a black turtleneck sweater with black leotards and a big gold spider pinned to my shoulder. I was asked to sing this in New York. I prepared myself by putting on the same costume and made my entrance to whoops and hollers. The audience was very excited to see me. I sang my song and all the while the screams continued. Bobby Sherman received the same attention that Jerry and the Pacemakers did, which was girls screaming for their teen idols. Apparently, the spotlight made the stockings a little too opaque, and the judgment of the program manager was that I was showing too much skin. It was okay for the male artist to create female hysteria, but the reverse was immoral. When I exited off stage, an arm reached for me and it wasn't my dad. Someone who was in charge grabbed me. I was stunned. Before I knew what hit me, a woman's voice said, you are not to wear that costume in the second show tomorrow. Look how excited you made all those boys in the audience. It was like a curtain of shame falling on me. At the same time, I thought I did a good job and had a good time. So what was the problem? I was ordered to change my costume. My inspiration was gone for the next night's performance, and so was the audience receptivity. These moral issues haunted me. I could have rebelled and insisted that I not change anything, but the responsibility to my family loomed heavily on me, so I complied once again. The truth is now I'm 18. I'd had two years of success, which gave me the confidence to once again be a little more daring. I had been following the incidents of bra burning and felt akin to the nature of being a liberated woman. On an unconscious level, the oppressive merry widow bra and girdle, which in retrospect restricted my breathing and digestion, had to come off. I never thought of carrying a protest sign and marching in the street like other females were actively doing at this time. But deep down, I was protesting all the same. I decided to design a dress to wear without a bra. It was a beautiful, light pink, bejeweled lace, layered over a solid pink slip. On my next appearance for Dr. Pepper, I wore it proudly and had my taste of freedom. Dr. Pepper VP John Simmons took me aside and painfully squeezed my arm while he reprimanded me. In essence, I was told to put the bra back on, or else. No one had ever deliberately touched me in such a violent way. It left marks in my arms. I complied, but I never trusted him again. In reflecting, I'm glad that I took the risk, but I regret deeply having a man touch me that way. I can assure you that this incident left me with an emotional scar and resentment that surfaced in relationship conflicts when I acted out with abuse that I had experienced. The old guard had its way. When I took the risk of expressing myself, I was never quite trusted in the same way by Dr. Pepper. Mr. Parker was no longer the CEO. Now, a true Southern gentleman, W. w. Foots Clements, became the new CEO, and with that change, more rigidity. Tradition in the South runs so deep that we even witness the stubborn lack of change in some parts of it today. Without blaming any individual, this change was definitely not in alignment with the progressive movement happening from coast to coast. We were entering a mod world, and Dr. Pepper was seriously stuck in the past, contrary to their advertising campaign and desire to reach a teenage audience. That's why they hired me. The mood of rigidity and stalwartness to behave as though we were in a Betty Crocker mentality reflected in how they chose to use me in commercials. They even changed my signature jingle and put me in a group environment. You know, there's always a price to pay.
2: Wow. It's so much strikes me about that excerpt. First of all, I think there's, when we're talking about the morality, there's that real double standard that comes up again and again. Like, as you said, you know, the the boys can get the teen girls excited, but if a female performer does that, then it's look what you've done to those boys, you know, which I think plays out in, in so many of the social issues we have when there's that kind of attitude taken. But I think in your case, it's interesting, Donna, how it seems progressively as the times are changing by the mid 1960s, and this is 1965 by this point, and you're coming of age, you've just turned 18, you're really coming up against the old guard that's still trying to hold on to the way that things are and this old morality. And I kind of wonder, as you approached 18, whether the company, those you worked with, and even your parents began to worry about losing their control over you. And that plays out in the harsh reprimand that you got from the person at the Goldfinger performance, but also someone who up until then you, you know enjoyed a quite collegial relationship with in John Simmons.
1: Oh, boy, that is such a loaded, <laughs> a loaded subject. <laughs>
2: mm. um,
1: I mean, it's still pervasive today, mm. you know, that um, the gender gap may have closed somewhat, but there's still a great divide mm. um, in terms of a woman being paid equally uh, as a man, in terms of her having control over her body with mm. complete uh, authority and, and without any criticism. You know, the um, dominant, dominance factor in our world you know, which comes right down to a slavery mentality, whether it's a you know one of a labor force or one of a gender gap um, within so many sectors mm-hmm. religion it's just it just goes on and on and and your belief system of true equality. Uh, is pretty rare to come across, even though I know it exists. I mean, you and I, I feel, have a, a very <laughs> inimitable. Is that how you say it, Adam?
2: I think so. I hope so. That that That's, sounded good either way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, and and uh, you know, to have that feeling of ease that Mm. you are trusted and that your intentions are honorable and to respect, you know, one's thoughts and actions with a depth of understanding, you know? So I personally can go into greater detail in the future. Mm. Mm. Um, Regarding you know female, let's just say female equality, but I was mm. going to also say liberation. Um, it's it's really been an uphill battle, and may I also say that it's probably one reason why I've kind of aligned myself with the likes of Gloria Steinem and, and mm. other leaders in in the female movement, because a little action from me in a small scale reflects what a leader, you know, on a larger scale is trying to do for all of us. And, you know, it takes some courage to take that step. And uh, like I said, I, I don't regret it. Mm. But um, there, there was a price to
3: pay.
2: There were the consequences, yeah. And what's interesting for me, because it, it comes up, you know, again and again later on, and even in a previous episode where we talk about the interaction that you had with Dick Clark many years after you'd worked with him, uh, you know, who again you enjoyed a very good working relationship with. But, you know, there often was in the industry and, and not just your industry, but other industries, this idea, I guess, is as long as, you know, the woman played her part and did what she was supposed to do, then there wasn't any issue. But if there was any, you know, want for that uh, liberation or to do something different, a whole range of barriers could be put up. And, you know, I, I kind of wonder, you know, I, I think about, you know, the similarity between, you know, you and I, and I think a lot that what comes up in our discussions is this idea of being controlled and, and feeling that we're being controlled by people. And I think certainly you experience that again and again, as, a, as ha- have I in other situations. but. I almost wonder whether it was for the most part that you did do what you were asked for. I'm reminded of um, an oral history excerpt we read in a previous episode from Foots Clemens, who you just mentioned in your reading, and he was asked uh, by the interviewer when he was doing this in 1995, you know, how much of a risk was it making a young female in America so significant that she could be identified with the image of the company and vice versa? And essentially, you know, Foots replied that there's always a risk when you tie yourself to anybody, particularly someone who's in the public but then he said in Donna Lauren's case I think the right decision was made by the company and the agencies so it seems like for the most part you're playing the role that you're expected to play
3: yes
1: and I I totally respected you know my position in the company but let's face it you know rather than just conforming you know to or, or even second guessing or actually even more so Mm. Um, being stagnant because, you know, that was a very progressive time. Mm.
3: Um, mm. You
1: know, it, it seemed like every month the skirt hemlines were getting shorter <laughs> and shorter. The mm. hair, hair, you know, the hair length on on guys mm. was getting longer and longer. And this sense of gender equality, for the most part, you know, when two people were walking side by side from from the back, You couldn't tell if it it was a man or a woman or a boy Mm. or a girl. And maybe that was symbolic. But uh, nevertheless, it just tells you where that movement was going. Mm
3: -hmm. And
1: um, the idea of self-assertion, you know, shows a sense of empowerment. And, you know, you and I have talked about asserting yourself Mm. and, and showing, demonstrating that empowerment, you know. The only real way to maintain control is to knock you down so that your self-esteem suffers and you do comply.
2: Mm -hmm. And it plays out in, you know, agreeableness and self-sacrifice. You know, what sort of strikes me is it always seems more and more as we progress through the reading that you're being exposed to experiences that would be confronting for anyone much less an 18-year-old girl. And I'm thinking about our, our next section of the reading where if I can remind our listeners that you performed at the age of five in a military hospital with much older men who had returned from war and were hooked up to all matter of machines in this hospital. And, and your mother, you know, essentially provided you with a bribe to to perform in this in this really scary situation or confronting situation for anyone, but a five-year-old child. I mean, that's just staggering. And... We noticed that in our next part of the reading, where at 18, you're exposed to young men your age, whereas the, when you were a five-year-old, that would have most probably been veterans from the Korean War. But now we've got the Vietnam War raging. And at 18, you're exposed to young men your age and so much of their pain. Will you read for me and for our listeners?
1: Oh, definitely. I will continue. The Vietnam War was raging on, just too much violence being perpetrated on the battlefield as well as in civil society. My incident with Mr. Simmons led to empathy for fallen soldiers. I have vivid memories of visiting a paraplegic ward for Vietnam veterans. Upon entering the ward, I saw some guys sitting in wheelchairs. When I walked up to one young man... He turned his hand up and showed me the scar on his wrist and said, I tried to commit suicide. That was my introduction. Then a fellow who was bedridden called out to me. He patted on the mattress and was kind of playful when he then folded back the blanket and tapped on his sheet. His gesture was, get into bed with me, asking me to come and sit on the bed. As I got a little closer, he said, I can't do anything anyway. When I did sit down on the bed, I saw the despair in his eyes. I had never seen someone who had become paraplegic before. Certainly the trauma of what they were actually going through wasn't that realistic to me. My perception was that they were injured, but when I got close enough to them, I realized that this was something they would never recover from. Going into this experience, I was still licking the wounds from being reprimanded about exercising some freedom of expression. When I entered the war dressed in a uniform-like suit, hat, gloves, and the usual undergarments that felt restricting, how could I possibly know the restrictions that were put on these young men by fighting a senseless war? That day, that experience raised my awareness paradoxically beach blanket bingo was a favorite movie of both the enlisted men and drafted soldiers one of whom was my childhood neighbor tommy sullivan he was only 22 years old when he was fatally shot and returned home in a casket i went to his funeral and witnessed the 21 gun salute an honorable occasion but to what end My husband, Jared's closest friend, Phil, better known as P.F. Sloan, put it succinctly in his song, Eve of Destruction.
0: The Eastern world, it is exploding, violence flaring.
2: much to unpack there um, just I, I, I think you put it so i I guess i'm I'm just really uh, you know taken aback by every time I do come across that part of the reading because you you talk about such pain with these young men men you know your age and a little bit older and we've spoken about this before, but it seems. Like, as an empathic person for you, you were exposed to and took on a lot of emotions, expectations, and insecurities of those around you, whether it was your parents in a boardroom uh, with the Dr. Pepper execs, or now at this hospital with these men who had experienced such um, horrendous experiences. W- would that be an accurate summation?
1: Yeah, it's it's extremely overwhelming. Mm. And... Um, I I really feel that your guidance uh to help me understand what my feelings were then and and mm. actually what the experience was because my attitude was that starting at age 5 that I was there to give the audience or another person, I was there to give them Mm. some joy. And essentially, that was my role, you know, starting with my mother and and dad and my brothers. And so I'm on the couch. Can you break it down a little bit more for me, doctor?
2: (laughs) I will try for sure. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I think again and again, there's this sort of theme coming up that you were there to, you know, bring joy. And, and of course, you got joy in doing so, in performing, whether it was, you know, at at these sorts of situations, when you talk about being, you know, five at the military hospital. I know, of course, you performed at Camp Pendleton earlier than this. But, you know, it it does almost seem like the, the price to pay for you was that self-sacrifice there was there was a sacrifice of your own welfare at times mm. being put into these situations mm. and i know so many even entertainers you know who, who went over perhaps mm-hmm. to vietnam talk about you know the kind of vic- vicarious trauma that they face mm. that when being exposed to the trauma of you know these men and women uh they Experienced a a form of of trauma as well, and that's not restricted to people who went over there. I think it's anyone who is exposed to the you know really uh, horrendous experiences of another person, and engages with that can can often um, you know bear the scars of that mm-hmm. as well.
1: Thank you. That that gives me more clarity. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> I think of Bob Hope, you know, hosting those mm-hmm. those USO shows. Um, and all any of the performers that looked forward to going and enduring, you know, the hardships, but mm. to be able to, you know, to bring some happiness to our fighting men, and mm. um, primarily men, I believe, in the Vietnam War. Yeah. And mm. Um, mm. and I, maybe I just didn't have that complete capacity because of my foundation, you know, of having parents that. You know, just didn't really provide me with stability and um, an emotional foundation that that you know left me feeling so secure that that when I gave, you know, it wasn't a two sided coin. You know, if if you come from a situation where (laughs) you're you're doubting that you belong, um, and and then. Mm -hmm you're asked to give more. It didn't really feel like a sacrifice. It was just um, a huge effort to, you know, to muster that up. And then, of course, my nature came to uh, deliver maybe who Mm -hmm. I really am, you know, in my capacity to give um, so, how should we say, willingly, because yes Mm. it was fulfilling it was ultimately fulfilling but getting to that point you know i had to so to speak you know jump hurdles and overcome you know my own difficulties emotionally and and through my through my own personal life so maybe a bob hope and other people i don't know for sure but the ones that could face this more uh on a, a regular basis and not be affected uh as much possibly would have had a different kind of of childhood um something that where mm. they came from provided them with a sense of security and um gave them <laughs> Do you want to finish my sentence <laughs> you know <laughs>
2: I guess the foundation or, or the stability or, um, you tell me.
1: The self-love could it be the Mm self-love so that you're going into a situation that is so needy that you're filled with so much Mm. self-love that you have that to give. It's just like, you know, is your cup full? And of course, as you give, For me, my experience Adam is that when you 're in a situation where you you know you feel un uh, tapped so that you mm. know you enter into a relationship that you really trust, that foundation gives you a kind of a reciprocity whenever you mm. give and I think this reflects our relationship because when I give myself to you and you give yourself to me, there is a sharing that creates even more energy and keeps me coming mm. back for more. And I think that's, that's been a common thread in my experience in life with people that I trust mm. and, um, and I feel who trust me.
2: Absolutely. It's not this as you said it's not like the cup is always empty but never you know never refilled and and that's that's a phrase you hear so much in in um you know all sorts of walks of life and all sorts of occupations this idea that in particularly in giving occupations or or giving situations that it can't just be give 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 because then that plays out in burnout and depersonalization And, you know, nurses and doctors talk to me about this, that if they feel that it's give, give, giving, and there's nothing to replenish um, what they're doing, it, it plays out in where they do depersonalise their patients, where they do experience burnout, where they don't feel they've got anything else to give. So I, I think that's such a wide topic. And... I think what you do talk about, you know, this idea that you could bring some form of of joy, you know, to these people in in such a difficult situation for them. I think you also give a face. And I'm sure anyone listening who grew up around the time of the Vietnam War, who had neighbours who uh, went off to war or perhaps fought themselves, you know, I think you you give a face to these men, um, whether it was the men in the hospital beds or your neighbour, Tommy Sullivan. Tell me just a little bit about Tommy Sullivan and his family, because you grew up with them, you know, down the road. I (laughs) certainly
1: did. It was, it was a a family neighborhood on Grandview Boulevard. And they were, they were Mm. to my, let's say, if I'm looking west, which would be the ocean, they were to my Mm -hmm. left. And um, Mm. yes, and they were, uh, oh gosh, The Sullivans were a household of Mr. Sullivan Howard, who owned a Mm -hmm, shoe repair mm -hmm. store on Grandview Boulevard, just below Mm. Venice Boulevard, which was the major intersection, and on my way to grammar school another block away. So I'd always (laughs) pass Mm. Howard's shoe repair store. And of course, there was something in Vogue I may have touched on earlier, uh, that I loved putting taps on the heels of my shoes. And lots of kids mm. were doing that, lots of girls at least, and, you know, so they were just clicking their way through, you know, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> dancing their way through life at, at a you know, certain level. And, and so I, I mm. have a vivid memory of the um, aroma Wafting out of the Mm. shoe repair store, even if I never went into it, you know, that strong Mm. whatever chemical smell that that shoe repair people use to tan and polish the leather and repair it. And 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 I would hear his machines, you know, sewing the soles Mm. and, you know, he was he was the real (laughs) deal. So and so that was Mm. Tommy's dad and his mom was named Opal. And Opal Mm. was a very cheerful, um, kind of jolly, overweight lady um, who just Mm. loved her family and loved the color aqua. (laughs) You know, it was a very popular color Mm. in the 50s and and early 60s. And she painted the trim on her house aqua. She had aqua throughout her house. She even had an aqua, (laughs) gosh, american heavy metal car i don't remember if it was like an osmobile or a buick Ah. but it was one of those you know classic cars that was half white and half aqua and and she had two daughters Mm -hmm. patty and betty um Mm. and they were tommy's older sisters and uh tommy was um i think a year younger than me and liked playing actually playing with my brother alan they used to wrestle Mm. and tumble and and uh, they, mm. uh, there was a mud pit in our backyard, don't ask me, but m- my, my dad, Maury, dug out a, a hole in the backyard, filled it up with water, and those boys would love to immerse themselves covered in mud. I don't know, they liked playing in it. At any rate, um, Tommy and I, um, you know, had our moments. We, we used to climb on top of the gra- my garage roof. There was a fence between us. Mm. It was a redwood fence, and I would climb up and get on top of my garage roof, and he would climb up from the other side, and we would play cards. And mm. you know, that, <laughs> right. that was That's one fantastic. one you know recreation that we had together, and probably starting yeah. at maybe age six, seven, eight, something like that. And mm. um, you know, that was a normal normal thing to do, right? You know, just childhood memory that was really something a child just a child would do and so I've I've really fondly remember doing things like that and sometimes we'd um you know play boy girl stuff in in his we I climb up into his (laughs) attic where he had like a little window Mm. but it was mostly dark and you know we talked about things Mm. like he was a boy I was a girl and you know what did all that mean (laughs) and Uh, You know, and I even remember this, oh gosh, one time we had a neighbor uh, to the left of him and uh, I think Mm. her name was Mary and we didn't go to her house very often, but one day we did. And she had Mm. a two story like Victorian house where in this neighborhood, Mm. it was mostly post-World War II tract houses. So, you know, built in yeah, the late yeah. 40s or, you know, early 50s. And, but I think this house was um, one of the original houses on Grandview Boulevard that maybe sold off some of their acreage.
2: Yeah, which then became a part of it, would have become a, a tract house Yes, part of that land. So
1: here we go. Tommy and I yeah. go knock on Mary's door and, um, and she takes us upstairs to her room and – um Tommy leaned back against one of her dressers, and I guess there was a corner Mm. jutting out, and he knocked a—he knocked a—you know—he split his head open, and so so, those those are child—I know—he had to be rushed to the doctor, and and be stitched up but you know those are kind of like (laughs) huckleberry finn tom sawyer kind of incidences Mm, that mm. you would expect from childhood you know and so those are some of my memories with tommy and then of course you know i i didn't see him uh once my career really got going and also when I went to mm. went out of the neighborhood and went to a different school, mm. but he was, you know, I, I saw him growing up and he became more uh, close to Alan, my, my young, my younger brother. Mm. And, um but then, mm. uh yeah, I, but I was still living at home uh, at 21 just before I got married. And, um and I remember mm. the news, you know, of, well, so I was close enough to the family, even though after I was married, that's right, um, to receive the news mm. and visit Opal and walk into her living room with a memorial picture of her son you know, in uniform and then mm. going to the funeral.
2: Mm. And just imagining what that family, you know, never the same like so many families who who had that loss. I remember us uh, when I was in Los Angeles with you and we were driving somewhere, but we were on the, the, is it the 405? Is that the, the freeway? The, the freeway. Yeah, that's it. Um, and we were, we were stuck on there because that's what usually happens. But I remember kind of around that area we we drove past the Los Angeles um, oh. national cemetery, I guess, for the fallen soldiers. And I think I remember you saying that that's, that's where right, he was buried. That's
1: right. The, um, in Westwood, um, there's there's a two well two main streets. One is called Wilshire Boulevard. One is called Sepulveda Boulevard. Mm. And I believe it's the mm. busiest sex- intersection in all of Los Angeles, where people enter onto <laughs> the freeway. And mm. it, and mm. one street uh, east of Sepulveda is a street called Veteran, and that right. is where the Veterans yep. Cemetery is, with just thousands and thousands and thousands of grave posts they're all white they're all uniform yeah Yeah. and uh and then of course there's some beautiful maple trees i recall um on the property Mm. of course you know giving it a sense of beauty and um but that's Mm. right outside westwood where ucla is
2: Yes, yes, I rem- yes, I remember this now, absolutely. And in talking about P.F. Sloan, which you ended your excerpt with, who wrote such a brilliant piece of songwriting with "Eve of Destruction," which talks about not only the war, but you know, racial inequality, um, the environment, you know, the unrest, the, the the push and pull of what was going on at that time. Tell um, the listeners a little bit about how you knew Phil. You knew Phil through your husband Jared, who. Um, was part of the studio um, group or or, or recorded as part of the studio group, The Fantastic Baggies, which was uh, P.F. Sloan and Steve Barry. Yeah, tell us how you knew Phil.
1: Yeah, well, I met Phil uh probably mm, in the mid 90s so i'll just have to relay what i know about him through jared's uh, memory you know mm. jared was 13 when he met phil who was 14 uh, going to the same junior high mm-hmm. together and they just took up this relationship based on probably you know a Again, a a mutual trust and a Mm. love of music. I know that they used Mm. to go up to uh, the radio stations that were not um, as closed door as they are now. And um, mm. get promotion records. Mm. You know, I, Jared has in his personal collection lots yeah. and lots of demonstration forty fives that yeah, you
2: know, which are the old,
1: DJs mm. would receive to to play the, on the air
2: with the white, That's label, right. with the white and labels. That's right. I'm
1: line. not sure detail wise mm. how they you know managed to just. Make their way into these radio stations, but i'm sure Phil <laughs> you know had the ambition at a very young age to be part of the industry, whereas Jared more or less was already involved in um in a family business and developing you know his mm. printing uh skills and then eventually starting starting a major family owned business so mm. uh he he ended up in the studio with Phil because they they loved singing songs together, uh, like Jared used to sing with his brother Stan, <laughs> and um, so it mm, was a very mm. brotherly situation, which ended up with Jared uh, being labeled the lost baggy on the on the album cover of the Fantastic <laughs> Baggies. And may I also say, yes, that the, the way that mm. that I heard. Uh, fantastic baggies got the name was when phil was writing surf songs mm. uh at a very young age you know 13 14 15 um mm. that he he ran into mick jagger and played him uh tell him i'm surfin'. and, and yes. mick jagger yeah. asked phil well so what are you going to call the group and he said the baggies because baggies is kind of those uh board shorts that you wear surfing
2: board shorts and yeah. so yeah. Mick Jagger mm. said
1: fantastic therefore you know <laughs> Phil decided to call them the fantastic baggies and um they actually uh i believe were quite a sensation in South Africa which was a big surfing capital as well as yes. you know the united states and your country australia and
2: that's right They were big in South Africa with their, I guess, their singles and their Mm -hmm, LP. mm Tell them I'm surfing. But
1: what I, you know, if you don't mind, I'd like to digress just a tiny bit because all of these Mm -hmm. guys were subject to the draft. And when we're talking about why Phil at, I think, age 16 would write a song like Eve of Destruction Mm. is that Mm. they were all really scared that their number would come up but you know, Mm. yeah. Um, Mm. so the battlefield, you know, I know it's hard to assume that the battlefield was only where the blood was being let, you know, but the battlefield Mm. was in a lot of our hearts and minds in this country. Therefore, you know, we had a lot of protests and consequently Adam in this country, what I remember, because mm. I usually lived on the west side, where the veteran hospital was, where I sang when I was five years old. Mm. And, and those Vietnam mm. vets um, were still rolling around in their wheelchairs, you know, many, many years later, because somehow they, you know, our yeah. government really didn't support their rehabilitation and whatever they were exposed to absolutely and i believe it's that's still Mm -hmm. happening it's like you can go out and serve but whatever happens to you you bring it back and you're going to have to deal with it and they're not dealing with it very well
2: no and even now i mean i I know things have probably come up a a great a great deal since then um in the you know the current conflicts or the more recent conflicts but exactly right they come back and what do they come back to yeah they come back
1: to um, broken limbs, absent limbs and and their heads you know their mental attitude completely shattered from seeing what Mm. they've seen and which proves to me i I, you know i'm gonna stick my neck out again war is not the answer and you know whenever war was thought of that you had to conquer mm. you know this whole business of divide and conquer it it just it just seems to be peaking that it doesn't work
2: and that you know in phil's song and you speak in the interview that we've got coming up with stephen feinberg who was phil's collaborator um and there's lucy deciding yeah. to uh thank you, thank you lucy thank you lucy for chiming <laughs> in i think she's giving us an amen she is there you go and, and quite an affirmative one too and in, you know, Phil Song, um, and I know you speak quite a bit of this with Stephen Feinberg in the interview, um, uh, where he t- talks about you're old enough to kill, but not for voting in Eva Destruction. I think this reflects so much of what you're saying. Um, so I think our listeners are really going to appreciate this interview with someone who knew Phil for a short time, but a, well, a relatively short time, but a very intimate time in working on his autobiography, as, as well as some other really cool projects that Stephen goes into so you know as always I think we've covered quite a lot of ground thank you for sharing that with me and with our listeners as well as remembering um, some of these men who did not come back or did come back with significant injuries you know at a time when there is so much even now so much unrest in the world thank you Dr Adam
4: for your guidance
2: until next time everyone take care
4: Steven Feinberg is an author who co-wrote What's Exactly the Matter with Me, a memoir of P.F. Sloan. He and his wife, Alice, are very dear friends of mine. P.F. Sloan, or as I knew him, Phil, and my husband, Jared, met in junior high and remained, quote-unquote, brothers till the end of Phil's life on November 15, 2015. How synchronistic for my reading of Chapter 8, Shaken All Over, would contain Eve of Destruction, P.F. Sloan's masterpiece, and timeless message we, humanity, need now to wake up and live in grace on our beloved planet. This is incredible timing to pay tribute to our brother Phil on his fifth anniversary of passing. Hi, Steve.
5: Hi, Donna. It's a pleasure.
4: (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) I was going to ask you, how did Eve of Destruction affect you when you first heard it?
5: It changed my life. It changed my life in such a way that that, uh, when I was uh, 14 years old, I was a very messed up kid, and I didn't know which end was up. I really had come to the end of the line, uh, and my soul was missing uh, I, I was in a troubled state. Um, the world was in a troubled state, but I was uh, personally in a troubled state, and I remember one night, I forget what night it was, but I, I do recall after the research, of course, that it was Sem- September 20th, but I stood in front of a black and white portable television set with a rabbit ears, and I watched Jerry Lewis, uh, and the reason he, we watched Jerry Lewis introduce Eve of Destruction on Hullabaloo was because Gary Lewis was on the television show that night, so Jerry was the sort of co-host. And he introduced this song, and then Barry Maguire came out and sang the song. In a sort of junkyard set with old crushed Volkswagens and stuff, with his tight white pants and boots and his his gruffly voice, and I was just immediately struck by the song. Um, music was a was really the glue that held my sanity together at the time, so I was very conscious of what sounds sounds were were how they were affecting me and words especially. Mm-hmm. When he got to the line, um, this whole crazy world. Is just too frustrating. I was just—I felt like uh, a—I had been shot with an adrenaline into my heart. I—I I, I became awake, and it—it mm. uh, it truly changed my life from that moment on. I think I attribute that song to my grades improving in school, my getting along with people. I just all of a sudden
3: mm.
5: I felt like somebody was speaking to me. That's how—that's how, that's how much of an impact the song had on me personally.
4: And and you know, um, you know the song where it talks about too you're too young for voting. Yeah. And didn't that change even a grander scale in our policy for voting? Yes.
5: Yes. Um yes, kids. Eve of Destruction had a line in the song, um, uh you're old enough to kill and not for voting. A sort of uh variation on lines throughout history, uh, you know, how come I can you know, how can I go to war when I you know I'm not um, I can't influence the the politics of the day. And he he um he wrote that song and it became the battle battle cry to to uh to 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 put in the twenty sixth amendment Mm-hmm. Uh, which which brought the voting age down from 21, and I believe it's it's in the um, it's in the uh, records of Congress. It was entered into the records of Congress. Let's let's keep in mind that by the time Phil wrote uh, Eve of Destruction, he was already a major songwriter. He was already a talent. A lot of people think, well, Eve of Destruction came along. Phil Phil was a young songwriter. He wrote Eve of Destruction, and then you know everything started to happen.
4: Excuse me, but how old was he? You know when he wrote Eve.
5: Well, technically he was around 18, Um, but by the time it got on to Hullabaloo, I believe he was 19. He actually wrote the song about a year before it was ever recorded, Um, and... but he had been a major player in, in the songwriting world, and especially around Los Angeles. At 13 years old, he walked into Aladdin Records, an all-black label in Los Angeles owned by the Mesner Brothers, and he signed his first record deal, and he was the only white artist on that, on that, on that label. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his first hit record was was on Domain Records, which was uh, I think it was 1964 the, of uh, uh, Round Robin singing "Kick That Little Foot, Sally Ann," <laughs> uh, another black artist who was on the charts for I think 32 weeks with that song, touring mm-hmm. around with Dick Clark. Um, now, when that song "Beat of Destruction" came along, because of because of, we have to put our time, we have to put ourselves in the time and place. It's easy to lose perspective of that today because of, of a lot of what's going on. But in 1965, we were really not totally against the war. Even the United States was not totally against the war. Well, the- you
4: know, um, I recall that you know the movie I was in, Beach Blanket Bingo, was mm-hmm. a, you know a, a huge success for the, for the guys in Vietnam, and that's how I heard it. Yeah. And then I would I would go to these various uh, veteran uh, situations of hospitals and yeah. visit the young men so but the audience the tv watching audience in the 60s still didn't have access to experience what was really going on?
5: Exactly. That's exactly what was happening. 1965, 1960, end of 1964, 1965 was a sort of was a sort of transition point in the 1960s. I like to think that the you know the 60s started around 1959 and ended around 1971, but the but the middle ground of 1965, it, it, you know, it hadn't turned into uh, what we refer to as the later 60s or the sort of uh, there was no real strong anti-war movement, we were actually pretty, um, the majority of people were actually for the war in Vietnam and the end of communism, but what happened was that when you know the the people who were uh, singing songs about uh, protest and war and all of that, they were really it was relegated to the coffee houses of the of the universities and the sort of intellectual crowd and the academic crowd. And I grew up in Boston, so the you know it was we call that the Cambridge crowd. You know, across the bridge we'd walk across the bridge if we wanted to get really heavy and uh,
4: heavy. What do you uh, mean in Harvard? <laughs> In At
5: Harvard, in, you know, that Central Square and Harvard Square and all of these places. And we'd go into the coffee houses and sort of, you know, land of the black turtleneck. And it was, it was, it was, uh, we call that over the bridge. We, we're going over the bridge. And um, what happened was that when Eve of Destruction came along, it was, so powerful because the kids that did not have that world available to them, mm-hmm. the kids that did not have the coffee house and the intellectual world, and the, you know the kids like myself who were you know basically you know screwed up middle class kids without a future, or without anything going on necessarily except possibly state college if we were lucky. And what about um, the draft? And the draft was always above our heads, but the but when that song came along, we had a song we had our song, and that was the powerful impact of Eve you know when before Phil died um we were working on a book drafting out a book called this whole crazy world which was mm-hmm. a book about that one song you know it's one mm-hmm. of those songs that that really warrant uh, a a book and um we wrote a lot about that piece of of history of when Phil wrote that song he became a spokesperson Mm-hmm. For the youth movement, completely unprepared for that type of type of um, influence, but he went well, all he around was, the world
4: he was one of them.
5: He was one of them, but he went all around the world, and people were asking him, "Oh, my, my, you know, oh great master, what, what, how do you see? Why do you why why is there such rage? I mean, Time magazine has uh, had mm-hmm. articles about him, and all the big magazines had articles about him. How can a person this young be so angry?" Mm-hmm. And uh, Barry Maguire even you know, he was over there in Paris with Barry Maguire and Barry Maguire asked Phil. He says, "They're asking me, what's this song about? What is it about?" And, Bar- and, and Phil said, "It's a love song. It's a prayer to God." And and that's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. It was a prayer. Phil was asking. Phil was asking God, "What's going on here? What's happening? Tell me what's yes. going on." Yes. And that's wh- that's where that song came about. I've heard thousands of stories of of you know uh, oh uh, you know Dunhill wanted him to have a uh, you know a, a Dylan type song, and so they sent him home with a guitar and a picture of Bob Dylan or whatever. And that's ridiculous. One 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 person who did get that song was Bob Dylan. I read I read mm. uh, recently. Uh, I can't remember where it was, but you know, he he said something to the effect of, you know, maybe Eve of Destruction was right. I, mm-hmm. I read something else about Dylan uh, not too much long longer ago, and it was it was uh, you know, if you wanted to know what was going on on the street, you listened to Eve of Destruction.
4: May I make a comment? You know, since I was um, associated with with Warner Brothers for many years, you know, I I understood how producers, A&R staff, you know, the executives, revered the talent and gave them an opportunity to express themselves because they wanted authenticity. Um, with, with other companies, I, I never knew, you know, Dunhill per se, but I did know kind of the typical approach, you know, to, well, if, if so-and-so, such as Bob Dylan, is successful you know, let's follow that model. And um it's impossible that Phil, writing Eve of Destruction or any of the songs that, that he wrote, weren't totally from his heart, totally from his spirit, and completely original to him.
5: Yeah, so, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right, because, you know, it's not fair to Phil to – to say just you know just because a, you know just because a person can write successful pop songs all of a sudden he can't feel uh, something much greater come upon him. And he did it with many, many songs, not just Eve of Destruction. Let Me Be is as powerful a song as Eve of Destruction. I totally of a to Family is a powerful, powerful song. Nobody in 1965 was writing about uh, 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 young ladies under 18 years old having to revert, revert to re- prostitution to buy school books. And, I, and I'll say this, that, that um, I've always felt that the... Reason sometimes people will sort of poo-poo Phil's ability to be a true street poet, which he was, was based on his success as another type of writer. It's it's like saying um, it's like saying um, because uh, Quentin Tarantino was a he worked in a video store or whatever he can't produce serious films. Um, Phil's History and pop writing songs only made that song that much greater because of the infectious melody of the song. It was a, it's a beautiful song with or without lyrics.
4: Well, I'd like to address your comment about poo-pooing. Yes. Because as I, as I re- referred to certain uh, companies and groups of people that actually revered the artist and uh-huh. give them the space and time to express themselves, then there, were, there was the antithesis of the kind of money-minded, control-minded, you know, um, demeaning-minded uh, companies or groups of people or maybe just, you know, one person yeah. um, who may, you know, I'm going to give an example, not Phil, but Elvis. Yeah. I would say Colonel Parker. Correct. You know, I mean, Elvis was definitely the king, but he was subjugated By their relationship and he couldn't go against Colonel Parker because there was some hold on him and believe me I've experienced that in my life so I'm just saying I want to make sure that our listeners understand when you make a comment like you know he was poo-pooed it's a contingency of people who want to control and they are greedy and arrogant. And that's what we're suffering from now all over this planet. And that's yeah. what we must recover from. And that's why I'm so happy that you have consented to speak on this level of freedom and liberty. And may I, may I, may I ask you to tell our audience uh, a few stories about, you know, how Phil relayed some of his stories to you in the book that you collaborated with Phil before his passing. Uh,
5: if I may, if I may indulge myself a little bit, and and the and the and and the uh, in by all in, means, in the audience. <laughs> Phil and I, Phil and I had a sort of Tuesday with Maury a relationship. You know, so many people in Phil's life knew him for so much longer than me. There is a there was a wonderful guitarist, still is a wonderful guitarist. His name was Eric Lilliquist, and he lives in in New England and he was one of the true, he still is one of the great guitarists of all time. He he plays now with Tom Rush and he was with Jonathan Edwards and he was just a brilliant guitarist and he sent me a tape and he was wondering if he I could find P.F. Sloan because he knew that P.F. Sloan lived out here somewhere. And I said, Well, I'll give it I'll give it a try. Uh, you know, um, I hadn't heard from about Phil in quite some time. So I looked him up and I fo- I can't remember. I found him on a Facebook uh, message board. I left uh, um, I, have, I don't have Facebook, but a friend of mine did, and he left a message for Phil. And I got his telephone number and I called him up and I asked him if he could have a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And I said he said, Sure. And I said, I have a I wanna have I I wanna give you a tape. And uh, so I met him and I met him at red red uh what was the name of that place in Venice, Rose Cafe in Venice oh, and he yeah. walked he walked in there and I was like he was always one of my heroes as a songwriter and sort of artist and I thought he walked in there and it was like, Oh my god, this man is this I I was like I was you know, I was I was trying to be calm. <laughs> And he, we sat down, and he immediately took out a cigarette, and waiters started running over to him and says, you can't smoke in here. You can't smoke in here. And he says, where can I smoke? And uh, I don't know where you can smoke, but you can't smoke in here. I said, well, go outside. And we sat at a little table, and he kept, he kept paring at his cigarettes, which he'd always do if, you know, he couldn't smoke. he get ready to smoke and we stayed in there and we talked for uh probably two and a half three hours and then i gave him the tape and we i met him uh, i said how about another cup of coffee so we went over to norm's and he started telling me stories about and then i realized i'm talking to a person who was in the room which these stories are much more interesting and we we stayed there talking and and drinking coffee for about two hours three hours and after that he said um hey would you come over to my house and listen to my new music? And I said, yeah, sure. So I went over to his house and he said, I just wrote this song about Beethoven. And uh, would you mind listening to it? So he put the headphones on me and turned the turned the record on and, uh, or the, the tape on. And he watched me like I was, just stared at me for two, two you know, for the entire, I was <laughs> very nervous. And he stared at me listening to the music, wanting wanting my reactions. At the end of the uh, at the end of it, I took the earphones off and I said, "He says, well, what do you think? Uh, no one's heard it before." And I said, "Well, to tell you the truth, I think I just heard the second side of Abbey Road." Yep. And uh, and we started becoming friends. Uh, and he asked me if we. If, 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 I said, you know, but really, what we need to do here is write a musical because this music warrants a musical. So we. He says, "How long will that take?" I said, "About a year." He says, "Well, we better get started." And we had this experience of writing Beethoven together, the musical, and, uh, I said, look, Phil, these stories that you tell me, just give me every every time we have these sessions, let me sit down for five or ten minutes and you just tell me a couple of these stories. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Because I used to love to hear about the old co- stories of Jan and Dean and turtles and all that stuff. And uh, he, I said, you know, this information that you're giving me, we got to do something with it. I don't know what it is. I said, I don't know if it's a book. I don't know if it's a movie. I don't know if it's a documentary. I don't know what it is. But I think we need to get these stories down. So I got a little dictograph machine and I said, let's just put it down on the table Let's, without pressure, let's just talk let's just talk about these stories, let's not do any kind of formal interview or anything like that let's just talk. So after the sessions with the Beethoven musical, we would just talk for an hour or so and have a cup of coffee and, and, and maybe a sandwich and he'd tell me things. Then we started to get the idea of, okay, now we have enough information let's put it into a book. We approached a our, our friend of ours in England and, and uh, Sangeeta uh, uh, Waldron, the publicist, and he she arranged for a publishing deal, but the the uh, the thing was sort of a a very slow process, and I mean,
4: are you willing to share a few of those stories that still relate to you?
5: Well, sure. Uh, in relation to his his history, or in relation to the experience of of writing the book,
4: I think the stories that he told you that comprise the book.
5: Well, one of the stories that. Um, one of the stories that i i always loved and i just the the images of a kid when jared knew him uh walking down the street with a guitar in his hand he he he, he said he walked into a he walked into um uh, what was the name of that place i'm wallace Wallach's Music City with a with a new guitar that he had purchased or his, he had purchased and it was still in that triangular cardboard box or as he referred to it as a triangular cardboard magic box because it, <laughs> it because people would always know that you were a guitarist if you had that triangular box and there were a lot of girls uh standing out front and he couldn't figure out what was going on but he walked in through the front door where there were some security guards, and the, one of the security guards said to the other, "It's okay, he's a musician." And because of this triangular magic <laughs> magic box, uh-huh. and he walked into Eli, he walked into Wallach's Music City, and nobody was there. Everyone was there. Was absolutely empty. The place was empty. And he went over to the to the man standing behind the counter. And the guy was just sort of frightened. And he says, "Well, I'm I'm looking to get some strings for this guitar. I'm, I'd like to tune it." And uh, he put the guitar on the on the counter. And all of a sudden, from upstairs, which is why the girls were standing out front. Elvis Presley walked in. Elvis Presley walked down from the steps and he walked over to Phil and he says, "Hey, how you doing?" and he introduced himself and Phil introduced himself and uh he told him that he was a guitar player and he wanted to write songs and he and and Elvis actually told him how to finger a couple of chords, put his fingers on the on the strings and and gave him a couple of uh quick lessons in in Love Me Tender. And uh uh, history tells us what the re- reason he was in town at the time was cuz he was doing the film i can't remember the name of the film right now but um he uh, he was getting some work done on his guitars um that's one of the stories that always struck me uh his story of of a young man who was working so much so many doing so many songs at some at one point after eve you have to remember that he was writing hit after hit after hit after hit after hit. I mean, if you wanted a hit song, you'd go to Dunhill and you'd get a hit song. If you if you want a if you want a P.F. Sloan or a Steve Barry song, they would write. I mean, he invented the grassroots. He invented the in the grassroots in a in a in a studio. He, he and Steve Barry. He he. Uh he, he was influential in writing songs for the Turtles, Hermits, Hermits. He was doing songs for the Searchers. He was doing songs for everybody. He was doing songs for Black Roos, Betty Everett. He was doing songs for Anne Margaret. He was doing songs for Shelley Fabre. did was he doing, do
4: something for the Mamas and Papas? He
5: wrote songs for the – he he was the guitarist for the Mamas and the Papas. He, that's Phil Sloan's infectious guitar in the beginning of California Dreamin'. I think – uh, he was the guitarist on California dream and he was the guitarist on monday monday i've argu- arguably i will i would submit to you and your listeners that if it weren't for p f sloan's influence the those p, the the mamas and the papas would not sound like the mamas and the papas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um a, 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 stylistically mm-hmm. um i've I've heard demos of of uh Phil's songs that sound remarkably you know uh, he was he was doing songs for everybody. And uh I mean if you go to a top thirty list or a top forty list or a top hundred list of nineteen sixty five, sixty six, you're gonna get four, five, six songs. He was the he was the he and Steve Barry with the with the harmony of Jan and Dean. Uh after the Fantastic Baggies era, he was he was uh he was doing he was doing the falsettos. That's Phil Sloan on, on Little Old Lady from Pasadena. He was mm-hmm. he was doing all of these songs and uh, he was playing every day with with what later became later became known as the Wrecking Crew, but he, that was really not known that uh, at the as the Wrecking Crew then. Right. But he was one of those guys, not in the Wrecking Crew necessarily, but he was. But he worked with those guys every day. He was a songwriter. That's what he was. Yeah. He was a he was a working he was a working songwriter. Yeah,
4: that's the West Coast you know, a lit.
5: It was the West Coast Brill Building writer type of world.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
5: he was young, powerful. And I remember his obituaries. And if you really want to know Phil Sloan, read his obituaries, because I'll never forget reading Steve Barry's uh, comments to him in the New York Times after Phil died. And, you know, there was some some feelings and I don't know they fell apart from each other but Steve said he, he paused the interviewer said he paused and then Steve Barry said but my god he was good and mm-hmm. and that's Phil Sloan he was great he was a great great talent probably pound for pound one of the most elusive mysterious <laughs> figures ever ever to emerge from 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 rock and roll Um the and, and and that goes from from being a a young kid to to a, a person who you know he he really left Los Angeles when he was around 22 or so mm-hmm. and I I wanted to re- relate one more story you know when sure. Phil was when Phil was down and out uh, he was really struggling uh, he was eating a hot dog in a little hot dog stand on the corner of Hollywood and Vine. It, I don't think it's still there, but we used to enjoy hot dogs there ourselves. And he was eating a hot dog there, and on the radio came uh, Jimmy Webb's, uh, I believe it was the Association's version of Jimmy Webb's P.F. Sloan, the song Jimmy Webb wrote mm-hmm. about Phil. And uh, I've been seeking P.S. Sloan, no one knows where he has gone. And Phil was lost at the moment, and he said he just sort of fell apart, and he walked home. To oh. his parents' house on Crescent Heights, and in Crescent Heights, and he just sort of went to bed. Oh my! And he said, you know, he says, you know, the wonderful thing about being the wonderful thing about being catatonic in the '70s was that I missed disco completely.
4: <laughs> oh. so. it's actually making a resurgence. Dance music, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
5: His, his experiences in England were, were always were always very interesting to me. I find that I find that the stories that that uh, Phil tells about his life in Los Angeles at that time was was were just spectacular because it it represented a sort of an end of an era of how songs were written. It, it was it was uh, basically he referred to himself as a sort of he was in the back room and Barry Maguire came in and said, I'm looking for a song uh, because they had met, uh, he had met, um, I guess, Phil and, uh, um, uh, Lou Adler and I, one of the birds, I can't remember which one, but he was in a, a club and sun sunset. And, uh, Lou Adler says, come on over, you know, we have some songs for you. So he came over and, and, uh, Barry Maguire listened to a, a couple of songs and he didn't like them. And, uh, he played uh, one song after another, like a, like a, like a, you know, a, a plugger, song plugger. And Phil played a little song on the piano and he said, no, no, I didn't like that. And, uh, he got to wh- a song called what's exactly the matter with me. And, uh, he played that song and goes, that's the song. That's the song I want. <laughs> and, uh, he, he talks
4: like that, right?
5: <laughs> yeah. He said, uh, well, yeah, he was a welder, man. This guy was a, this guy's a tough guy. Oh. And, uh, he says, that's the song I want. And, uh, so he got, and then they recorded what's exactly the matter with me. Now that wasn't Eve was not the A side of the song. Oh. He he recorded what's exactly the matter with me, and uh, they needed a B side. And uh, I can't remember who it was. It was Lou or or uh, Hal Blaine or something or somebody said. What, what about that song that you had, you know, you were talking about that that uh, Eva for Destruction song. So they were eating chicken in the studio, uh, mm-hmm. and, and Phil had the lyric of the song written on a piece of paper, and there was chicken grease oh, God. on the paper, or I guess on Phil's thumbs, and they couldn't. Barry was trying to read it, so he said, oh. well, the Eastern world, uh, that's why he's doing it. He can't read the song.
4: Oh my my
5: my my! That was one take. That song, the song that you hear, the the song that you hear is the song that we heard. The song that everybody heard was one take. They did a little. They did a little thing where they put some layers in afterwards, but basically the song is one take. Yes. Hal Blaine turned his snare drum upside down and did that beginning opening with the military drums. Okay. And he uh uh. And it, and and it came out now. Uh, some DJs flipped the record and and then all of a sudden it, it immediately caught on and and mm-hmm. and, it, and it became a number one hit all over the world mm-hmm. uh, but it wasn't it wasn't intended to be uh, but but it brings you to the it bring it, it sort of takes you through that process of I got a song I want a song you know well yeah. you know, he's, he's down the end of the hall you know you you want a song go go see Phil Sloan um, and the Thomas and the Papas were the same way they needed a song you know and and they you know Barry McGuire was was originally slated for California Dream and that was supposed to be a Barry Maguire song. And in fact if you take a if you take a listen to uh the the California Dreamin' you can still hear the ghost of Barry Maguire's voice underneath uh, John Phillips. Oh uh as as well as Phil's guitar lick uh on the Bud Shank uh flute uh solo in the middle of the song. Um that was originally a guitar uh, thing that Phil wrote. Thank so
4: you for that insight. <laughs> yeah,
5: there's a lot of different levels on these songs. I mean, you know, a lot of different influences and a lot of different inspirations and and uh, you know things like that.
4: Well, the, the canvas begins with the first layer, but by the time the artist is complete there are so many layers to that that Oh amazing. my
5: gosh, you're so right. I mean, you take you take uh not th- one of the most fascinating stories in my opinion was, you know, the story of the Grassroots. Now the Grassroots were a tremendously successful group. Huge. And Phil did a song called Where Were You When I Needed You.
4: Oh my gosh, that's a
5: great song. Where, with Steve Barry and it was a hit. But they didn't have a group. Uh-huh. It was just Phil and Steve Barry and some studio guides and a musician doing Where Were You When I Needed You. Yeah, Where Were
4: You When I Needed You.
5: Yep, Where Were You When I Wanted You. And so Phil had to go get a group. <laughs> you know, they wanted, they wanted the group on where the action is, Dick Clark's thing, and who, who's going to be the face of the group? <laughs> so they came out with an album. There's nobody on the cover, if you notice. It's a chair. The reason there's a chair on the group and no person on the cover is because there was no group. So they went out and found a group called the Bedouins. And the Bedouins came in, and that was the first face of the grassroots. I mean, most of it was Phil singing, but they were the face of the group. And then they said, "Listen, we're a real group. We don't want to. We want. We don't want to just be. A, we don't want to just be a group that sort of makes believe we're a group. We're We are a real group. So we want to go be a real group." And uh, so they left, and then Phil went out and got a group called the Thirteenth Floor, not to confuse be confused with the Thirteenth Floor elevators. Sure. <laughs> and. Um, uh, he got those guys. Now that that became Creed, uh, Creed and and uh, Rob, um, um, uh, Rob Grill and all those guys, I see. and they became the grassroots. Uh, but in the grassroots tree of life, Phil, Phil Sloan and Steve Barry are the ones who are on top of it. So let me
4: mention f- that Creed became um, part of this highly successful series,
5: The Office. That's right, Creed Bratton. Creed Bratton. One of my great, one of my great moments. One of my great. Uh, I feel like one of my, uh, you know, we did a, we did a, uh, uh, sort of a, a grassroots show, grassroots revival show, whatever oh, it's right. called. Oh,
4: right. I remember.
5: And one of the great all-time moments for me was the big count off on live, live for today, you know, one, two, three, four, mm. Phil was playing bass that night with Warren Etner and, and, uh, Creed Bratton. Creed was a great friend of Phil's and, uh, he, uh, He did many shows with Phil. But I must say that that one of my great joys of of my relationship with Phil was driving, not only traveling through England with him, which is a story in itself, uh, but um, to go to these shows with Barry Maguire and John York on the birds and just to stand backstage and hear these guys singing Eve of Destruction. Mm. You know, it's such a circle, uh, you know, from that 14-year-old kid I described at the beginning of the conversation Mm -hmm. to that person now here. With Phil, you know, it was just—it's such—it was such a blessing to be
4: yes, I that do close, that.
5: that close.
4: And now I, I would love to pay homage to Phil's music that you, you and I have just been luxuriating over. Um, and so may I, may I say thank you, Steve. Many, many, many blessings to you, and please give my love to Alice and well, little thank Bucky. You. I heard little Bucky in the background. <laughs>
5: uh, that was uh, – uh, Bucky was uh, concerned with that dog. He was the, the oh. dog next door, uh, oh. so I, I, I closed the door. His name is Walter. He comes from England.
4: Oh, <laughs> Well, my love to all of you, and let's listen to the great P.F. Sloan's masterpiece, Eve of destruction. Thank All right. You,
5: Steve. Thank you. you. tell me over and
0: over and over again, my friend. I don't believe we're on the eve of destruction.